When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome back. Here's why you should join today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Nasdaq wants a piece of the crypto pie. One of the world's largest exchanges is getting into the crypto custody business. We'll explain what this means for the wider market, plus a deep dive into how the merge went and what happens now. Host of the on-chain podcast, Laura Shin, gives her take. As always, we'll break down this conversation into key takeaways for you guys at the end, so stay tuned for that. I'm Paul Guerra, and with me, as always, Ash Bennington is with me. How are you doing, Ash? Oh, I'm doing great, Paul. Last night, Masari mainnet opening party, late night, lots of caffeine this morning. Oh, that sounds like fun, Masari. Good stuff. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, smash the like button for the algorithm. And if you're hearing us on your favorite podcast platform, stay tuned for more. Now, let's jump right into the latest price action. The total crypto market cap is above $930 trillion. All eyes are once again on the Fed. At 2 p.m. Eastern, so in about four hours or so, we'll find out what the next rate hike is. And markets generally expect another 75 basis points. This is important because cryptocurrencies have been very sensitive to rate hikes lately. And this has been impacting prices all over the market. So far, the moves are subdued. Bitcoin is up slightly for the past 24 hours, and it's, you know, a little seesawing above and below $19,000, and its market dominance is around 39.5%. We might see a bigger move after the Fed announcement, as always. And in the meantime, MicroStrategy announced it bought another 301 bitcoins. This means they hold now around 130,000 bitcoins in total. This means also that Michael Saylor is balling. Ash, what about Ethereum? How's it doing? Yeah, a similar picture there, Paul. Investors appear to be in a wait and see mode, probably looking toward the Fed meeting as everyone on Wall Street is this morning. Ethereum is up slightly for the past 24 hours, trading above $1,300. Coindesk reports a city research report stated that ETH has remained stable post-merge. It also says that issuance of new ETH is estimated to fall by 90% to around 600000 a year. We'll touch on that later in the show. Finally, it notes that ETH is now a yield-bearing asset. City puts the yield at 4.5%. Separately, Decrypt reports data from OKLink that shows Ethereum miners dumped ETH at elevated levels last week. 17,000 was offloaded, Paul. Wow, that's a lot of Ether. Thanks, Ash. Lots of changes under the hood for ETH following the merge. We'll discuss this in more detail later in the show. But now, let's take a look at our top news story today. Well, which is a fresh vote of confidence in the crypto by Wall Street. Nasdaq, the company behind the world's second largest exchange, has announced it is getting into crypto for the first time. The company will offer custody services for Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum to institutions. 
Bloomberg reports that Nasdaq hired Ira Auerbach, who ran Prime Broker Services at the crypto exchange Gemini, to head up with the Nasdaq New Digital Assets Unit. He told Bloomberg, quote, we believe this next wave of the revolution is going to be driven by mass institutional adoption. Mass institutional adoption. End quote. Ash, bullish words from the man. Let's start with the basics, though. What's crypto custody? Well, in the simplest terms, custody is how people store and secure their own assets, whether it's digital assets like cryptocurrency or stocks and bonds. So traditional custodians in the modern era have stored, for example, stocks and bonds on behalf of their clients. What does that mean in crypto? When assets are stored on a blockchain, uh, what it means is that crypto custodians store and guard private keys that you use to access your wallet, Paul. Well, it seems it will be a fight for custody because NASDAQ will have to compete with Coinbase, BitGo, Anchorage, among others for those institutional clients. But NASDAQ is a big brand. What do you make of this story, Ash? Well, you know, it's interesting. NASDAQ obviously has a reputation of being a high-tech exchange, uh, you know, particularly in the wake of the the first uh, Web 1 revolution. NASDAQ was where all the hot stocks traded in the 90s and the 2000s. Lots still trade there today. It's almost kind of like a, a passion, passing of the torch kind of moment here, uh, essentially where you see an exchange like NASDAQ getting involved in the crypto custody business. It suggests that we're seeing more mainstream adoption. Uh, I think, as the quote said, more institutional adoption, or at least interest uh, around digital assets and around institutional adoption, and the desire, the quest to custody those assets and to trade them securely. I think it's probably a bullish sign on balance for the crypto space, but obviously lots of stories on any given day. I'm sure we've got some negative ones coming up, Paul. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. You're a wizard. But well, that was actually positive news there. But yes, now let's take a look at an equally important but less optimistic story. And here it is. Another day, another DeFi hack. Crypto market maker Wintermute has confirmed it's lost $160 million. The company says the hack was confined to its DeFi business, and it says it's lending and over-the-counter services or the CeFi exchange were not affected. The CEO says Wintermute remains solvent, with more than twice the amount stolen left in equity. He also said they're treating this as a white hack attack. Early reports suggest the hack was sophisticated, but details remain scarce. Ash, can you please explain how a crypto market maker operates? Sure, Paul. If you want to buy something or sell something, you need to obviously match those buyers and sellers, and you need to provide liquidity. You can think of liquidity in the simplest terms as a kind of inventory for buyers and sellers of financial products. If you don't have adequate inventory or liquidity, it means you get inefficient pricing. What that means is that it costs you more to buy, it costs you more to sell. The idea is to aggregate this liquidity to match buyers and sellers and to have efficient price discovery in markets, Paul. Thank you, Ash. Well, you know, it's not the first time that that DeFi hack has been reported on this show. What do you make of this? Uh, this isn't even the first security event involving Wintermute. Gizmodo reported in June that the market makers saw about $20 million initially disappear after a wrong crypto address was used in a transaction. It was a series of unfortunate events, so to speak, that led to this. Uh, but the story has a mostly happy ending, which is that the hackers returned most of the stolen funds. What's interesting to me is that according to Coindesk, Wintermute is still calling this a white hat attack, which may 
may signal that they hope to get at least some portion of their assets back. This is an unusual space, as people know, uh, who follow this show uh, and the other work that we do here on Real Vision, that occasionally you have these white hat attacks, so-called white hat attacks, where people want sort of the recognition of being able uh, to penetrate uh, a protocol or penetrate uh, an exchange, and then they give the funds back. I imagine that is what they are hoping is going to happen uh, over at Wintermute. Look, we've said this before here, just a little bit more broadly to talk about a little context around DeFi. These hacks are regular occurrences in the space, whether they're flash loans or bridge hacks. These are regular events in the space. You know, it's this this weird sort of space that we're in where we look at DeFi. Many of the smartest people in the industry think that this is going to be the future of the way assets are traded, not just digital assets. There's a lot of optimism around being able to trade traditional assets, capital markets, assets like stocks and bonds on trade. But the reality is these security challenges are considerable. They are consistent. We see these significant hacks happen in the space all the time, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Unfortunately, this is just another example, Paul. And unfortunately, I suspect it's probably not the last we're going to be reporting on. It will not be the last, that's for sure. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another news story we want to look at is an announcement from Coinbase. The company is integrating its Coinbase wallet browser extension with the ENS, which is the Ethereum name service and Ethereum-based domain that replaces your wallet address. You know that long line of numbers and letters that is impossible to remember? Well, that one. So Coinbase will hand out free ENS usernames to its customers, and they will be formatted with the name .cb for Coinbase.id. So, Ash, Coinbase says that this is a big step towards making Web3 simple, to make it accessible for everyone. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, Paul, I think it's a cool story. User interface, user experience is a significant challenge in crypto. It's much too complicated. I think this is a step in the right direction. I think that's probably true. I registered ashbennington.eth, I think, over a year ago, and I got ENS hmm. tokens airdropped to me, just in terms of full disclosure here. Not why I did it at the time. We didn't know we were going to get the tokens airdropped. I just did it because I thought it was cool, you know, for exactly the reasons that you talked about. Obviously, long strings of alphanumeric characters are very difficult to remember. It's easy to remember ashbennington.eth. I also think it's interesting that Coindesk is branding this by prepending CB before the addresses. That's smart. It basically mm. allows them to have some branding in the space in addition to helping uh, their customers have more easily recognizable names. I think this is kind of a cool story, and it seems like a step in the right direction, broadly speaking, Paul. Yeah, it seems also like a great marketing move to have the CB attached to every single address. So everyone will see the CB and know, well, what is this? Oh, it's Coinbase. What is that? So yeah, a great marketing move also. And speaking of Ethereum, there was actually this tiny little event lately, Ash. I don't know if you remember it. It happened, I think, a few days ago. It was the merge. You know, it was one of the most complicated and anticipated operations in crypto history. By and large, it's been considered a big success so far. And our Elaine Lee spoke with Laura Shin about it. Laura is a journalist, author, and the host of the Unchained podcast. You can also check out her book, which is great, by the way, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Here's how she described the big day. 
what was your reaction when the merge was successful? Were you one of the ones who stayed up very late to watch it happen? I kind of cheated. I went to bed at a normal time and then I set my alarm. And I have to say, I projected quite well because, you know, there wasn't a specific time, but I managed to wake up basically right before it happened and witnessed it. And knowing that Ethereum had been working on for years, and in fact, it was so technically challenging that they'd had to delay it a number of times. And, you know, ultimately, uh, the reason it's called Emerge is they felt the safest way um, to make this happen would be to just get a proof of stake chain going, just make sure that worked. And then, you know, the task of moving all the economic activity on Ethereum, which really just has grown so much bigger than shifting that over, you know, was, was uh, you probably heard, similar to swapping out the engine on a plane mid-flight. And the fact that it went off seamlessly, I think is really shows how much homework and um, deliberation they put into it. They did a number of test uh, merges. They realized like, okay, these are working well. They, you know, debugged and they kind of tweaked things. And then the fact that it basically was flawless, the fact that it was sort of like uneventful and how seamless it just went from block to block, I think really shows that, you know, the delays were worth it, that, you know, all the extra research and the the careful, um, you know, planning of the beacon chain and getting that going for was a smart move. Yeah. Small baby steps, but no news is good news, as they say. Well, no news is good news. The merge indeed was a major technical achievement that took years to come true. And the fact that they made it uneventful, it's nothing but remarkable. Ash, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, Laura Shin, she's the ultimate crypto podcast OG. Uh, she does a great job of describing the complexity of the merge here and why the merge is called the merge because the economic activity on the main chain was being merged with the so-called beacon chain. This was the pilot chain for proof of stake. Uh, all in a nice, simple description all around here by Laura. That's that's very right. And the move to the upside for ETH many hoped for has not materialized yet. In fact, on the contrary, we've seen ETH's prices dropping a little. So let's hear Laura's expectations on the way forward. This is known as one of the biggest success stories for the Ethereum network. But for investors, prices do look worrying this week. You know, now that the merge has happened, where do we sort of go from here? Has the dust sort of been settled? So I would say that for anyone looking to put their money in any crypto, you need to understand how that crypto works. And you need to understand how that fits with your own personal um, financial goals and your own financial picture. And so, you know, what I'm going to say here is very general. It should not be taken as a financial advice for anybody. But, you know, regardless of the macro environment, the truth is like just leaving that aside, that the monetary policy of Ethereum has changed dramatically and in a way that many investors view as something positive. Until this point, Ethereum um, had a monetary policy of just, you know, uh, inflating the supply of ETH. And um, that was used to basically pay miners who were system. The issuance has dropped dramatically from about 5% inflation to about 0.5%. And on top of that, there is um, a change that actually happened a little over a year ago called EIP-1559. And that also changed... Um, how usage of the network is tied to the value of Ether. And so now, basically, the more popular um, Ethereum becomes and the more demand that there is on the network, the, the um, higher the value of ETH uh, could be because what's going to happen is that 
um, that demand will make um, will cause uh, certain fees to be burned. And when you um, you know consider that there's this decreased issue, actually even more will be burned than is being issued. And so throughout the last year or so, ever since EIP 1559 went through, there's been a website called ultrasound.money. And they have a little meter where they uh, would compare, you know, the usage on the network at the time. And then you could toggle a little switch to see, okay, if we were to simulate this in a post-merge environment where this new policy is in place of, um, you know, burning the fees a certain way and then the, the um, dramatically reduced issuance, then would, would ETH be inflationary, or sorry, deflationary with this amount of usage? And it would show you, you know, like different times would be like, oh, this amount of ETH would be burned if, you know, uh, it was this amount of usage. Interestingly, right before the merge for like the month or so before, um, despite the new change, it was actually still slightly inflationary because demand on the network has fallen. Um, so that's why I'm not saying it's definitely going to be deflationary from here on out. Like I said, it'll depend on the usage. But regardless, the issuance of Ethereum has drastically dropped. And that's why you'll see popular crypto investors such as Arthur Hayes, who uh, previously was an investment banker, and he also was the co-founder and CEO of BitMEX. He's very bullish <laughs> on Ethereum. And you can read, he has an amazing blog, but you know, he always just boils it down to that simple thing. Mm -hmm. And I think um, you know, for those for the for people who just want a simple explanation, that is what you should pay attention to. I love that. And this is still a website that we can pop in and have a little play around now. Yeah, you know, now that I think about it, I haven't checked it since the merge, which at the time of the merge, it, uh -huh. like uh, there was so much demand on it, you often couldn't even pull it up. Fine. So I don't know uh, what they did with the little toggling thing now. Maybe it's just gone. It seems that Laura is referring to a supply shock happening with Ether. Ash, could you please elaborate on Ethereum's burn mechanism and why this deflationary system is so important? So, you know, EIP-1559, that's Ethereum Improvement Protocol 1559, details how mining fees are split into base fees and tips, uh, and also how the burn mechanism works. I think that's probably pretty technical stuff and not of incredible interest to our audience. But what I think is more interesting to hear is why, post-merge, Ethereum's monetary system is now deflationary rather than inflationary. And that's this, Paul. In the simplest terms, it's because ETH staking is more efficient in terms of cost and in terms of energy than ETH mining. So because staking is more efficient than mining, validators spend less than miners, which means they require less compensation because their costs are lower. Therefore, fewer Ethereum need to be created to pay them. Probably a bit of an oversimplification, but that's sort of how I think about it. The monetary base is expanding more slowly because there's less need uh, to pay miners. It's a more efficient system, and therefore, you don't need the massive monetary expansion to keep the system going, Paul. Awesome, Ash, and don't worry about oversimplifying things. We actually love it. You're our filter to enlighten us with your insights, so we appreciate it. And of course, you know, Ethereum does not operate in a vacuum. So what happens here is that people are watching, specifically people sometimes from the Bitcoin community, and the merge begets this question. Could Bitcoin transfer from proof of work to proof of stake? Let's hear what Laura thinks about this. Talking about Ethereum, which is the world's second most valuable crypto asset, we have to talk about Bitcoin as well. You know, does this advancement of ETH moving to proof of stake affect BTC at all? What have you sort of seen on the community when they're saying that? So interestingly, I you know, I think most Bitcoiners would say, no, it does not affect Bitcoin. We will never switch to proof of stake. Um, however, 
I did a few interviews with mainstream media on Thursday, the day of the merge. And yes, many of them asked me, does this mean that Bitcoin will also move to proof of stake? And when I couple that against the fact that there are multiple um, governments and regulatory bodies that have expressed concern with the environmental footprint of Bitcoin, I do feel that this question will come up again in the future. It may still be at that point that the Bitcoin community is staunchly opposed to switching to proof of stake is probably going to bring this question up again, like I said, because there was regulation in Europe. It didn't pass, but it was some regulation that was concerned about this. Um, or are still kind of learning about this. And there are arguments of major proof of work chain, uh, major blockchain that uses proof of work. If you're, if you're gonna kind of single out that type of consensus algorithm, Bitcoin's really the only one that matters. Um, so I noticed a sort of more cautious version of that in New York state where what they did was they put a ban on any new facilities that were using proof of work mining. Existing facilities in the state of New York that do proof of work mining can uh, keep going, but they're going to do a study during this period to, I think, figure out essentially if they do want to go forward with an actual ban. So like I said, when I look at kind of the regulatory environment and just in general, the increase in concern that investors have about ESG issues, that's why I wonder, hmm, down the line, could there be more pressure again? Who knows? That's interesting. All right, I'm going to just take that point and move on to my next question, actually, which is, you know, when I remember when the Ethereum merge sort of happened, Vitalik, one of the tweets that he tweeted out was the merge will reduce worldwide electricity consumption by 0.2%. And basically, it's just sort of saying like, look, Ether's definitely got greener. And I know you spoke to Justin Drake on your podcast as well. Um, and, and Ethereum's energy use basically has come out and said they're dropped by more than 99%. So that's a big plus for the planet, which is a good thing. So um, I know you mentioned a little bit about ESG before. So will this um, sort of momentum and drive investment and more adoption for ETH? You know, this is something I have also been wondering for that very reason that um, now one of the biggest criticisms that people had of proof of work chains like Ethereum or basically, honestly, for the sort of uneducated mainstream person who, you know, doesn't follow all the nuances of crypto, they, they actually think that every single blockchain has this environmental footprint. Mm. So, you know, I do wonder, um, will that mainstream person who isn't following every little last thing happening in crypto really kind of understand that now this criticism is no longer valid, at least of Ethereum. I don't know. You know, when I look at the comments on news articles about crypto, oftentimes I don't see um, as that level of understanding about the differences between the blockchains. I see a lot more comments where people view everything in crypto with the same broad brush. And so I am very curious if uh, the everyday person will get educated on this and understand that. Um, but certainly if they do, then yeah, I do believe that one of the main criticisms I've seen of crypto will um, be invalidated, at least when it comes to Ethereum. And, you know, Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin community is working a lot also on using renewable energy, and they've been doing a lot of things to show how actually Bitcoin could be used to make uh, renewable energy producers that are kind of um, further away from the grid, but in places where things like solar and wind power are quite plentiful, 
um, give them more, uh, uh, what's the word, like uh, evened out revenues, like help them when demand on the, on the grid is low, but wind and solar are high to mine Bitcoin and earn money. And then the second that kind of peak energy usage is up, they can shut off the miners, send the money to the grid or the power to the grid. Um, and so, you know, I see that they're doing a lot of things in this regard as well. So, you know, I, I think it's that um, Bitcoiners aren't, uh, you know, it's not that they don't care about these issues or that they're not aware of these criticisms so much as they simply think that proof of work is the safer and more secure way um, to uh, protect a blockchain from attacks. And so for that reason, they'd like to stick with it, but at the same time, also reduce the environmental issues. Well, lots to unpack here, Ash. What do you make of Laura's first answer? Do you think that Bitcoin will succumb to ESG pressures? And secondly, why does the Bitcoin community consider proof of work safer than proof of stake? Well, I think Laura is right here. You know, this is probably the easiest question you're going to ask me all day, Paul. I don't <laughs> think uh, Bitcoin is going to be switching anytime uh, soon from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, second question, why? Because Bitcoin's proof of work protocol is considered highly safe, highly reliable. In many ways, it's considered the gold standard of consensus mechanisms in the crypto space. You know, when I first got to Coindesk, I was having one of these very long technical talks about Bitcoin uh, and the consensus mechanism with one of the editors. It was a little bit confusing, honestly, at the time because I was pretty new to the space. And I think he actually got confused in describing it to me. He lost his place and he got a little bit flummoxed and he just said something like, well, Look, forget all that. Just think about it this way. Everything in Bitcoin is about making sure that the network is secure. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to know. And, you know, it's funny because of the fact that he got confused in the in the explanation about how mining worked. He actually came upon that sort of simple truth. And I think in a very clear way, which is Bitcoin is 100 percent all about security. It's been all about security from the inception. It's all about security right now. And I think in many ways, as I said, it is sort of considered to be the gold standard in the space. I don't think the Bitcoin community uh, is ever going to be. Well, I shouldn't say ever, but for the foreseeable future, meaning years and maybe even decades to come, it seems pretty unlikely that Bitcoin is going to switch away uh, from proof of work to proof of stake. I just don't see it happening, Paul. Yeah, Ash, it, it's like they say, you know, you don't fix what's not broken. So that might be the case with Bitcoin. And what's next? Now that the merge has been completed, and that's the question everyone is asking, okay, cool, we have a merge, but what's happening next? What means it 2.0 for me? So Elaine and Laura got you covered, guys. Here's the next clip. I know that Vitalik said there are five steps to sort of complete ETH development. Um, it's that whole little rhythm, the surge, merge, or purge, or whatever. But um, very Dr. Susie. <laughs> before we break down to every single one of them, okay, we got through the merge. I get that. The next step is the surge, and from from my understanding, um, it's just along the lines of the blockchain's ability to store and access data. And you know, I want to know um, if you know anything about the next steps um, in regards to the surge. Um, it's something along the lines of the blockchain's ability to, to store and access data, like I said, but I'm hearing words like dank sharding. Um, do I have to brace myself for, for what is yet to come? You know, I actually did an interview right before this. And um, after the interview, the um, host said something like, 
gosh, I feel like I am half lost and half, you know, like trying yeah. to keep up and learning new things. And, and I said, mm-hmm. oh, oh, mm-hmm. it's like that for everybody in crypto. So yes, um, there's a whole bunch of new terms. And in fact, what's super fascinating is that, you know, sim- similar to how the merge went down, um, there were times in Ethereum's history where they had ideas around how to increase throughput on the blockchain, how to increase the transaction capacity. Um, and it's still evolving. And, you know, this idea of dank sharding is actually a relatively new one. Um, but essentially, you know, the problem uh, with a blockchain and with scaling it is that if you think about how, uh, you know, because we have this decentralized system that, you know, there isn't one company that's managing the ledger you know, all these computers around the globe, they're all managing the ledger. And the uh, Ethereum blockchain at this point is um, seven years, more than seven years old. I had to think about that for a second. Um, But, you know, that's a lot of data. And so when you want to keep it decentralized, it's taxing for the different node operators Mm -hmm. and validators to keep the state of the blockchain stored. And so if you can kind of separate that data layer from um, from the blockchain that's stationed at another layer, like that helps to scale things. So um, that's kind of the concept there. I don't have like a ton of technical details on really how they want to do this. And frankly, um, given the way things went with the merge, they would probably change them at some point down the line when they get closer to it. But um, but yeah, that's that's it. And the reason that they want to do this is because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, usage on the Ethereum network has been extremely high at different times. And when that's happened, the fees have just been astronomical. And it really prices out the everyday person. And for a community like Ethereum, that is really this kind of inclusive community, very open. They want to be this decentralized computing layer for the world. They don't want to have it be something where only whales can use it because, you know, the transaction, I mean, even, you know, I'm a journalist covering the space. I remember I was trying to do a few experimental transactions on my own for like research or whatever. And like, for me, it was like really expensive, you know, like I was actually paying more in fees. Yeah. Making one transaction. Yeah. I remember trying to send Ash a cup of coffee and I was like, Ash, I think they just charged me 10 pound fees, uh, $10 in fees for your $5 cup of coffee that I just tried to send to your address. And he's like, oh yeah, this is an issue here, Elaine. Yeah. I actually paid $90 for my Kings of Leon NFT. So, uh, and that, that NFT itself is only $65. So I ended up paying like $150. And I was like, wow, okay, $90. I mean, there's a lot of things I could buy for $90. So, you know, um, anyway, but the point is, that's why the surge is being prioritized and why, um, yeah, that's next on the road. Look, I remember when the merge was happening, everyone does ask that question. Does that mean it's lowering gas fees? Mm, not quite. So I'm assuming with this next step, hopefully we'll get there. Um, do we have like a certain time frame of when the surge is hoping to happen? Dare I ask that since the merge just happened last week? You know, I'm not sure. I have not looked into that. Um, the next thing that I do often hear a time frame on is the ability to withdraw your staked ETH, which will happen in like six to 12 months. Yeah. So, um, Look, Laura, yeah, if anything I, that I've learned covering the space is sometimes slowly and surely it is a safe way to go about things. And I couldn't agree more with Elaine and Laura. Ethereum's future upgrades aren't easy to digest for most retail investors, and that's why we're here today. So in layman's terms, 
The surge includes the Shanghai upgrade that will allow people to withdraw their staked ETH and it will scale the network. Then the Verge will allow users to become network validators without storing lots of data. Then the Purge will remove all network history. And finally, the Splurge is the fine tuning of all the preceded steps. But Ash, I want to stop a second here on the Verge and ask you why it is considered such a massive step towards decentralization. I don't know, Paul, I may be getting a little bit over my skis here with the technology, but let's give it a shot. So <laughs> The Verge uh, is slated to use something called Verkle trees, which are similar to Merkle trees. Uh, a Merkle tree allows basically protocols to roll up a series of transactions into a highly compressed block of data, a kind of a hash. So there's cryptographic compression going on, but that data can then be validated uh, by anyone on the network. Uh, and that represents all the transactions that have come before it in the chain. So Verkle trees, if you read Vitalik's explanation, are more efficient than Merkle trees at doing this. That allows the network to become more decentralized because it allows validators, as you said, uh, to process more transactions with less storage space. If you're really interested in this, Kate Irwin over at Decrypt wrote a great summary of it on 21 July 2022, which I drew on here. Uh, and if you want the really long form explanation, go check out Vitalik Buterin's more detailed analysis on his website from 18 July 2021 called simply Verkle Trees. It will probably melt your brain, Paul. <laughs> Sounds good. I have my coffee ready for it. And finally, Elaine asked Laura about what else she's looking at right now. Let's listen in. I really just want to sort of tickle your brain about what sort of stuff are you sniffing out next? Like what would be the next biggest concern for the digital asset space in the next uh, up and few coming months? But also what is the next sort of big headliner that is uh, coming up? It, there's just so many more areas of regulation that need to be decided and that are kind of being uh, contested, I guess you could say. Um, so that for me is really what I'm watching because that can kind of make or break the um, direction of crypto, especially in the United States, which, you know, traditionally has been one of the major financial capitals of the world. Plus, definitely, I would say the capital of all techno technological innovation, you know, like Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. I mean, you just like pretty much nearly every single major tech company in the world is an American company. And so there's this perception that, you know, America is on the bleeding edge of innovation. But frankly, um, up until this point in crypto, a lot of crypto people would say that the U.S. actually lags behind and that, in fact, certain regulators just don't either don't get it or are hostile to it for reasons that they feel are um, either based on a misunderstanding of the technology or simply irrational or like uh, show some ignorance or something like that. So, you know, there's just a number of these issues Um I would say that uh, probably the, one of the biggest ones in the U.S. is around um, whether or not tokens are securities. And, you know, this is just I see this playing out on so many different fronts. Um, but I think a lot of the entrepreneurs feel that as long as the um, government or regulators take uh, what they view as an outdated position, a sort of. Um, you know, let's apply the the old laws before crypto to this new space. They feel that if that happens, it will completely stifle innovation here. And we've already seen a number of American entrepreneurs that they um, just base their operations offshore and they do not um, allow U.S. citizens to partake in what they're building. And obviously, this is completely different from how previous tech revolutions have happened. So that's one that I'm watching.
Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate having Laura with us in today's show because her expertise and insights about different crypto topics are invaluable in times like this. Ash, just two days ago, the SEC claimed as part of a lawsuit that all Ethereum transactions fall under U.S. jurisdiction. And we reported this on, on to yesterday's show. So let's remind our viewers what this could mean in terms of regulation. Yeah, I don't really know what to think here, Paul. There's one paragraph in one filing in one case where SEC seems to imply, well, something. I guess it means maybe, maybe that SEC <laughs> believes that they have regulatory authority over the ETH network. Again, maybe. At least that's how it's being interpreted at its most pessimistic by folks who are passionate about decentralization uh, and the libertarian spirit of the crypto space. They fear a kind of centralization of authority. Um, I'll read you the sentence from the filing. This comes from a case brought by SEC that dates back uh, from July 2018, when a crypto influencer conducted what's been characterized as an un as an ICO or initial coin offering, which SEC, in their case, alleges constituted an unregistered security offering. So what does it mean? I know this starts to sound a little bit like a religious debate, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but let me just read you the quote here. The U.S.-based investors in Bolina's pool, that's the uh, respondent here, uh, ir pool irrevocably committed to the transaction when, from within the United States, they sent their Ethereum contribution to Bolina's pool. At that point, their Ethereum contributions were validated by a network of nodes on the Ethereum blockchain, which are clustered more densely in the United States than in any other country. And here's the, the, here's the real sort of culmination of the quotation. Quote, as a result, those transactions took place in the United States. There are those who believe that this is sort of implying uh, that SEC believes that they have jurisdiction over all of these transactions. But, but Paul, you know, I'm just a guy who asks dopey questions. I have to like, I have to like come and tell a secret about you here. You, in fact, are a lawyer. What do you think about this? Well, Ash, in terms of legal, the only thing I can say here today is that any of this is financial advice, just for entertainment or you know, educational purposes only. <laughs> but the only thing I know is that it's time to move to the takeaways. So here's what I've learned today and what I think viewers can take away from Elaine's conversation with Laura Shin. She says that the merge worked seamlessly and was uneventful, which is a good thing. She points out, she points out that one of the biggest changes in Ethereum's monetary policy issuance of new ETH has lowered significantly post-merge to a point that the token could be deflationary rather than inflationary. This means that investors need to reassess how they view this particular asset. Also, while it's unlikely that Bitcoin would follow Ethereum into changing to a proof of stake, Laura thinks that the future regulatory pressure could see Bitcoin adopters reassess this. So it might happen. Well, time will tell. And she says that mainstream media has not yet paid much attention to Ethereum's new much lower environmental footprint. That means that the average Joe or the average mainstream or the average retail crypto investor is hasn't in his head that Ethereum is now more like environmental friendly, let's say. And Laura points out that this is not the end of the road for Ethereum development. More upgrades and changes are coming, so stay tuned for more Ethereum. And finally, she sees regulation as the next big thing in crypto. And we always keep an eye on the latest regulatory developments, so keep tuning in on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing for more. And moving on to the final segment of our show, my favorite, here we have the viewer's question, Nash. Are you ready? Let's do it. 
Awesome. So, okay, the first one comes from Terran Crypto on YouTube. Awesome. Sorry, before we start, people on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm, hit the bell, subscribe to the channel. We'll keep bringing this show way more content, more value, and we're switching to a daily show. So stay tuned for more. So the hit question the is, <laughs> that's right. Ash, <laughs> is there a bigger macro headwind for Bitcoin than the DXY? It just keeps climbing. Can Bitcoin grow in the face of a strengthening dollar? Uh, Taryn, this is a great question, uh, something that we've talked about here on the show before. You know, this is really about the causal nature of what's happening here. Is A causing B, is B causing A, or are both A and B independently correlated to some third factor, maybe C? I think in this case, what we're seeing here is central bank policy that's influencing the rising dollar on one hand and also uh, the suppression of crypto prices on the other. Liquidity is being withdrawn from the system. The dollar is rising uh, because folks in FX markets see the monetary policy in the United States and also a flight to quality bid perhaps uh, in that is something that is uh, an investment that they believe is interesting for them or a trade that they believe is interesting for them. So I don't really think, in my view at least, this is just my opinion, uh, that it's the strengthening dollar per se. It's what central banks are doing that's causing the dollar to rise and also causing crypto prices to fall, Paul. That's right. Thank you, Ash. And actually, if you're interested into checking the power of the dollar, I would recommend you check on Real Vision, uh, the video of Ren Johnson, his whole milkshake dollar theory. It's amazing. Check it out on Real Vision. And Alan Lung on YouTube has this next question for you, Ash. Sailors' purchase is being celebrated by Bitcoiners. While it may not increase centralization due to Bitcoin's proof-of-work nature, it will increase wealth concentration. I believe that wealth concentration may hinder adoption of Bitcoin. What are your thoughts? Well, this is a great question. It's a very sort of philosophical one, and it's something that we've heard debated before. I mean, you know, this is kind of a challenge. I don't want to get myself in trouble with the Bitcoiners here, but look, there is this risk uh, that you could see uh, a concentration of wealth, you know, particularly because there is no inflation uh, in, in the, in the, there is some inflation, but it's a very sort of stable, predictable inflation uh, in the, uh, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And the, the level of that inflation is incredibly low in terms of the flow relative to the overall stock. I think it is a challenge uh, in 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 theory, at least. We're just going to have to wait and see on this one. But I, I understand the concern, and I think that serious people have raised this uh, and questioned precisely that issue. Uh, as uh, as Alan points out, uh, less of a concern about decentralization because of the proof of work me uh, mechanism uh, for consensus than we would see, for example, in Ethereum. But yeah, I think I think it is a concern, and 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 you know what happens. For example, uh, when people who are most passionate about Bitcoin, you know, you'll hear calls about Bitcoin 1 million, Bitcoin 100,000. You know, what happens when that price keeps rising uh, and people who did not have the opportunity to get in at lower prices, like what do they do? So I think it, I think it is a, a philosophical question. I'm sure Bitcoiners have answers to these questions. Uh, I'm sure if we had one of them here, they would tell us why in their view uh, they don't see this as a problem. But I think it is something that is probably a concern. I think that's reasonable to say and something that we should think about. Something we should think about. And well, once the stock to flow model reaches its predictions and those levels, we'll probably see, as you said, once those prices go high, what happens with Bitcoin. Next question comes from Toby J on YouTube again. After the merge, what is the total supply of Ethereum and what percentage is staked? 
So as we re reported, uh, City estimates that the issuance of new Ethereum has fallen by 90% since the merge to around 600,000 a year. According to Ethereum.org, $14.5 million, uh, $14 of ETH is staked right now. I think that's the number of total coins and not the dollar value. Why charts puts the total ETH supply at 120 million. So quick calculation here, around 12% of ETH is staked right now based on those numbers. And thanks to our crack producer, Arturo, for coming up with that data on the fly. Shout out to Arthur. And well, thanks so much, Ash. As always, ladies and gentlemen, with you, the great Ash Bennington. Thanks for all your insights today. And well, that's it for today's show. Thank you for watching, guys. As always, don't forget to subscribe on the YouTube channel and smash the like button and hit the notification bell so you know when we go live. And remember, this is your show, guys. We want to hear from you, what's working, what's not, your feedback. So please drop a comment down below and let us know your feedback. As Raul Pal said, and now I'm subscribing to those words, I'm not too proud to beg. Subscribe to our channel. We're doing a lots of content for you guys, so stay tuned for more. And let us know what guests do you want to see. What theme should we cover? We appreciate you sharing your time with us today. And tomorrow we got Ben Cohen with the latest technical analysis for all of you who love charts. So make sure to subscribe to realvision.com forward slash crypto. And this gives you access to the very latest content. And as always, best flavor of all, it's free. See you tomorrow live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.